0: The Media Society Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Media Society Podcast. My name's Paul Blanchard. Some of the topics we'll be discussing this time will be how the media should deal with breaking news coverage when it comes to violence. The Guardian has raised its cover price again. Is print dead? Is the BBC Trust fit for purpose? And whether or not that is, should pattern go? Around the table today we have the writer and broadcaster Christina Patterson, political consultant and former special advisor to the Deputy Prime Minister, Joe Foster, and former BBC editor, Kevin Marsh. How should rolling news channels deal with violence when it breaks out? Often there's no time to deal editorially with the images and some people can get quite disturbed. So the question should be, given the pressures of rolling news, when violent
2: episodes break out, how should rolling news deal with it? Kevin Marsh. Well, I think largely uh, most of the rolling news, the live and continuous news channels, they do get it right because most of them have got some kind of inbuilt um, editorial device, if you like, a delay or a standing instruction that certain kinds of images shouldn't go straight to air. The real problem with, uh, I suppose, the most significant recent example of this was was with the, uh, the Woolwich murder, the Lee Rigby murder, where that wasn't live and continuous news that put the most disturbing images uh, uh, on TV it was actually the built programs the the bulletin programs and that came about because people as they do nowadays they were carrying their phones with them uh, and there were some pretty arresting images of the the murder and its its aftermath and there you did have a decision being made do we use these pictures or not there was the obvious competition for the pictures in the first place uh, ITN put them on air first at 612 caused ITV a little bit of a a problem because that was obviously way before the watershed. Uh, And the images were very graphically used. The BBC didn't use them at first. Sky didn't use them at all. So there was an editorial decision that was decision-making built in there. And I think, broadly speaking, ITN, I think, got it wrong by about three hours. And I think the BBC got it wrong uh, because it it really couldn't sort of face up to what this story was all about, which was the graphic nature uh, of the murder. There is the argument, of course, that if you do have... Uh, pictures of the consequences of terrorism, the consequences of violence, it's actually evasive uh, and misleading not to show those consequences. You know, one of the arguments about uh, about violence generally on television is that uh, we often show the violence itself for excitement purposes, but we never show the aftermath of that violence. So, you know, the arguments are very, very complicated. I think with, with live and continuous news, with rolling news, to be quite honest, you know, I've been there in the galleries uh, and there is a finely tuned this cut in in seven seven in 2005 when the BBC made a lot of mistakes about what it put on air and so there there are editorial processes with life and continuous that cut in now to try to minimize the, the likelihood of it happening it still doesn't mean with the massive increase in user-generated content it still doesn't mean that graphic images aren't available but they tend to be things argued over in the built bulletins, rather than live and continuous.
1: Christina Patterson, your background is from print. You don't have the the, the kind of live deadlines that often uh, running TV channel producers have. But on the other hand, do you think Kevin's right that there is a duty on, on the editors not to shield people from the consequences of this? And if you know, if the, if the murders of Drummer or rugby do have bloodied hands and are holding a, a, a machete, shouldn't that be shown unvarnished?
0: I think it's an incredibly complicated issue, and it's very hard to know how to. At how to get it right, as Kevin said. I think in the last few days I've heard about some research, which which one might guess, but but which has actually demonstrated that uh, constant exposure to images of violence through the news media do anesthetize us to the reality of that violence. And I think it's an, I think it's one of the things that makes you think actually we need professionals. And obviously the trend towards content provision in absolutely every medium is away from professionalism. But these are very, very finely balanced judgments that you have to make. And you have to weigh up precisely that whole issue of the impact for people on the streets when they see a horrific event like that. Also, the effect of people as they're eating their dinner or whatever. And I think it takes expertise and a bit of nous to balance those judgments. And you won't always get it right. And... The the great challenge of journalism, or at least professional journalism, is how to pitch this stuff so that it has an impact on the world. Also, of course, you can't be innocent. It's about getting ratings as well. But my my view on it would be it's how you do that and try to be truthful without being cynical or opportunistic. I think that actually they were wrong to uh, screen those very, very explicit images I don't think I think, you know, people don't expect to see that on their TV. You can hear the detail of what happened and you don't actually have to see it. And I think if you see it, there's there's an argument that can do you harm as well. We we don't need to see people having their heads chopped off or the instant aftermath. This happens or tragically, it happens all over the world all the time. You know, we can hear about it. We don't need to see it.
1: Joe Foster, you were a senior special advisor until recently with the Deputy Prime Minister's Office. It's it's not just rolling news producers that ha- are caught on the hot by events like this. I imagine if you're preparing a statement for the DPM, you've got to be mindful of any uh, sub judice concerns, as well as not you know repeating the same kind of styles of condemnations. How do you deal with it when something like this happens in government?
3: Well, uh, again, uh, I would just echo Christina's arguments. It takes professionals. I think you've got to whilst you've got to make judgments that are pretty sort of fast paced you've also got to give it some thought and be sensitive to people um, just to touch on uh, the, the, the previous questions. I think um, I agree with you, um, Kevin, it's slightly disingenuous to not show um, the violence, but the, you, you know, it's slightly disingenuous to hide it from people when you're talking about it. Um, the one thing that stood out to me about that whole day uh, in the coverage was that woman who approached him, you know, all of it was negative and horrific. And the woman, I think she said, "You'll probably remember better than me." You're one person against very many. Mm-hmm. She said something incredible. She approached the guy with a bloody knife, and I I, 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 was quite moved by that. Actually, in the midst of all of that, just for a second, you forgot the guy had a bloody meat cleaver, um, I, and it, I thought that was incredible. Actually, so I, I don't, I don't think it was all terrible, but uh, yes, no, it's a tough line to tread. And you know, I think one approach I always took was to to use a lot of people, ask as many different people as possible and, and take advice and not be afraid to ask it at, at times like that. I think you've got to use people around you, people from different communities as well, rather than thinking you know everything and you've got the answers.
1: Kevin, in terms of when you edited the Today programme, were you just as under as much pressure when breaking news happens to stay, keep your listeners up to date as the television channels? Well,
2: well the problem you've got is, you know, journalism is about uh, getting getting people's interest, is grabbing their attention. You know, most people are not attentive most of the time about most things. So, you know, one of the defining things about journalism is that, you know, you get their attention. Uh, obviously, in radio, you're getting their attention with words. On TV, you're getting their attention with pictures. So the, the demands are, uh, are very different. But I think you're always existing in that tension between uh, being truthful to the bigger truth. You know, what is the bigger truth of all of this? Uh, and, and trying to create impact. With, with a particular set of circumstances. I mean, I once um, led, uh, when I was the editor of The World at One, uh, the, uh, Fergal Keane, who was then a reporter in Northern Ireland, he phoned in at two minutes to one, uh, telling me that a mortar shell had just landed in front of his car. Mm-hmm. Now, this wasn't the biggest news story of the day, but it was the best story of the day, and I could put him straight mm-hmm. on air to tell this story Now, a lot of people said afterwards, well, what was that all about? You know, it's just one guy and, you know, it happens thousands of times in Northern Ireland. I said, yeah, that's the point. You know, how often do you get that kind of impactful storytelling about an incident that is violent? It is dangerous. It's horrifying. It's scary and all that sort of thing. So you're always looking for the thing that will make the impact like that will. But, of course, if that didn't represent a bigger truth, this was when there was violence in Northern Ireland, if that didn't represent a bigger truth then then all you're doing is just chasing the images for the sake of it and i do think that is that is fundamentally wrong christina in terms of print it's a different
1: challenge though isn't it because people have already got the news news from their breaking news source whether it be rolling news or the today program or whatever they're looking for something different when they open the newspaper how do you how do you deal with that practically
0: quite apart from the photography on which i am no expert clearly it's about this thing called crafting the language into something that reads beautifully and movingly and that makes people feel things as well as think things. And again, at the risk of sounding like, um, well, Margaret Hodge, maybe, <laughs> the, the trend <laughs> seems to be away from thinking that how you craft language matters. Well, it's almost the central thing about journalism, about print journalism. It's about writing, and that's a skill and it's not a skill you acquire overnight. And I used to get people emailing me all the time saying, I've got lots of opinions, why can't I have a column? And I would say, well, the the, the issue is whether you can craft those opinions into something someone else will want to pay for. But it's it's a very different challenge. And, I, and one of the things that's wonderful about the media is that there are all these complementary challenges. So, you know, absolutely right that on TV it is about the image. Um, as Kevin said, on radio, that's a really interesting thing that there's the story that is the... The universal that comes from the particular and here you've got this person who is a professional, who is able to bring that story alive in a way that Mrs. Bloggs, who gets a you know, a rocket in front of her front door, might not be able to do quite so well. I mean it's it's wonderful the diversity of it all, but you know, again, at the risk of sounding grumpy, there is absolute professionalism and huge skill at the heart of each of these decisions in each of these different media. And that tragically seems to be on its way out. It's the very least. You can ask,
3: isn't it? Like you say, there's bigger truths. You're talking about people's lives, aren't you? It's the very least, I think, that we, can, that we should be expecting from our media, isn't it? That someone will craft words that read beautifully and are worth paying for when you're talking about murder on the streets of London, mm-hmm. you know.
2: I mean, I wonder, though, if, if we're actually... This might just be me, I don't know, but I'm finding more space in my life now well-crafted words than I probably was three or four years ago.
0: That's mm. because presumably someone is paying your rent
2: on your bank. Trust I don't mean me producing them, I mean me reading them. I, no, you I know, know that's I'm, absolutely I'm against am spending the trend. I'm spending more time reading longer pieces in the New York Review of Books and in the New Yorker and so on uh, and even in newspapers uh, because I think well,
0: well... You're the only person in the world who's doing that. Maybe it is going against the, the trend direction. but
2: I do, think, I do think there's something here and you're absolutely right. It is that diversity, it is that difference that I think is really interesting now that that I can get my quick fixes from Twitter and all the rest of it, Mm. you know, multitasking and having endless windows open or whatever you call them these days, you know. And then I feel the contrast with sitting down with 2,500 well-crafted words mm. and really kind of just wallowing in it. Mm, now, yeah. maybe I am the only person in the world.
0: Well, you're one of the few. I <laughs> mean, know. actually, I have to say, I've recently started doing long-form stuff for the Sunday Times magazine, which mm. I... Well, I did occasion. No, actually, my interviews for the Indie were quite long. They were about 3,500 words. I did... When I interviewed Gordon Brown, I had 5,000, which was fantastic. And certainly, you can do more in and a half thousand four thousand words and it's fun to write that and personally obviously I like reading that but I have to say it does look as though the trend is not in that direction
1: I'm with you though Kevin I've, I've changed I mean when um, when Murdoch put the Times behind a paywall I tweeted you know this is a mistake it's going to decline blah 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 and then I realised I actually read the Times three or four times a day just kind of dipping in and out of it and then quietly without telling anyone I subscribed by direct debit and that <laughs> interestingly because is I'm a the, the first time f-
2: you've confessed yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but interestingly because I now pay the 17 quid a month via direct debit I've got it on my my iPad And I make a point of reading it every morning. So it's actually made me read the Times more as a result of it. I don't know whether like, you and I could be different you know, to the rest of people. Uh,
0: well, just- we are. Well, I'm sorry, but the figures say <laughs> you are. I wish they didn't.
2: Yeah, to some extent. But I mean, you know, obviously some of the magazines that have migrated to the web you know, they see a point in it.
0: Yes, no, and that, no it, that, and, that's right. And, yeah. I, and I personally think that, mag, oh, we'll get onto this subject later with mm. the demise of print or the non-demise of print if we're going to be optimistic. Um, magazines are holding relatively well, actually, yeah. compared to, to newspapers. I mean, newspapers, for obvious reasons, will be the first to suffer because if they are perceived to be providing primarily news, then clearly you don't need that through a newspaper. In fact, mm. it feels like going on a penny farthing to be, you know, waiting for your news from something on paper in the morning. But um, and, and magazines, you know, have... Provided something different to that and will continue to provide something different to that. But I think there is such heavy pressures on all of these areas. It's very hard to see how it's going to turn out.
1: Agreed. So moving on from that, Christina, the next topic to discuss is, is print dead? The Guardian has just recently increased its cover price. We all know that it would be, well, those that are unkind to all the Guardian Media Group would say that the whole business wouldn't even be viable but for auto trader. Uh, Everyone wants their news for free. Um, Why is anyone buying newspapers?
0: Well, it's not really a question of whether you're being kind or unkind to The Guardian to say it's not viable without Auto Trader. It's not viable without Auto Trader. I mean, The Guardian has been going on a bottomless pit called the Scott Trust, which may not be entirely bottomless, actually. But essentially, The Guardian, like pretty much every other paper, is a kind of vanity project. If you want to have a newspaper, then what you need is a Russian oligarch or Australian billionaire, or essentially, somebody very, very rich who is going to run it as essentially a vanity project. They, they might have, one hopes they do have some motivation that goes beyond that. Generally, the odd invitation to Downing Street will feature quite prominently in that motivation, which is absolutely fine. It's a fair swap. But certainly most newspapers are not making any money. I mean, The Guardian loses about 40 million. I think it went down to about 30 million last year. The Times loses about 40 million um, the Independent loses, <laughs> won't even go into The Independent quite a lot. And um, yes, there is no question that that print newspapers are not economically viable and most people are not buying them anymore and young people aren't buying them at all. And in fact, young people, it's not even a question of print versus digital. In fact, young people are not consuming their news content in huge, great branded clumps like newspapers. They are consuming their news in little bite-sized chunks like you get on Twitter or BuzzFeed or 27 cardboard boxes that look like David Cameron or the listicle that is now so ubiquitous it just makes me want to write a list of 20 reasons why I hate the listicle.
1: A listicle of uh, hated listicles, right?
0: (laughs) I mean, it's just, you know, it's so cynical. You just see, in fact, I saw that Louise Mensch has started some website called I was going to call it joysticks but it can't be joysticks it's it's joy hacks I think it is and it's some kind of well-being website Um, and it's entirely cynical in that every single item on it is 20 this 15 that you know everything's going to be that we're going to be young people are going to grow up thinking that every single issue in the world breaks down into 10 or 15 slightly amusing points to have with your sandwich and your cappuccino at lunchtime.
1: Kevin you were an editor at the BBC for many years, isn't uh, The phrase that always comes to mind is the unique way that the BBC is funded. And doesn't that give it some uh, editorial licence to actually give people proper news rather than giving them this ridiculous listicles that everyone seems to want?
2: It does, it does to a certain extent. I mean, the, the problem with the universal licence fee, well, one of the problems with the universal licence fee, uh, and this was impressed on me year in, year out, was that if you're taking money from pretty well every household in the land, You've got to give pretty well every household in the land something they want. And this is what people overlook when they say, oh, close down BBC Three or close down local radio or whatever, that, that that's part of saying, well, OK, you give us 140 odd quid, whatever it is, you know, you're getting something of value back. Does it give you license to, uh, to experiment to be different or, or, or give people you know solid news, if you like, without thinking about the cost of it? Um, yes, to some extent, but you still have to bear in mind that even with BBC journalism, making an impact is part of the point. You still have to, you know, you're still going to be on roughly the same agenda. You're still going to be reporting things in roughly the same framing. So, you know, the amount which, in the BBC, I felt able to move outside uh, other framings was 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 very limited. I mean, I think on the newspaper point, I, I, I was quite surprised. You know, I've always been quite surprised that newspapers have, have continued. The only reason I can think is that, you know, to, to, to take up your point, you know, it's a comforting bundle of things. It never was just news. It was a bundle of all sorts of stuff. You know and I used to buy a local paper, not for the news, but for the football results, for the racing, mm. you know, for the weather. Um, you know I used to I, I still persist in buying The Guardian for years, for the Sudoku, you know so <laughs> it's kind of it was this convenient nice little bundle of things. and as soon as the you know, the technology came along to sort of smash all that apart, time really was up for, for, for the papers, and then of course they lost control of the business model. You know, they didn't realize that classified that uh, sorry, display advertising and classifieds were dead. You know, Google did, Yahoo did. You know, all the newcomers did, but newspapers somehow for a decade and a half. Refuse to understand what's happening to them. So I'm just astonished that there, you know, there still are things called newspapers.
1: But in terms of the BBC license fee, why hasn't anyone there kind of made the case that it's the only thing that can guarantee genuine impartiality in terms of its news coverage? I mean, in what other well, news outlet would I think, I think would James you get Murdoch
2: the... would take issue with us. Yeah. Taggart well, lecture so would,
1: a few so years. So in, would Nick yeah. Robinson. No, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, <but laughs> my point it. is, no, my, my point is though, you, you would get John Humphrys on the Today programme, uh, you know, haranguing the uh, the Director General of the BBC, leading to his resignation. That would not happen on ITV. That would not happen on uh, uh, Sky uh, yeah, News. Of
2: course Of course it it wouldn't. And, and, you know, the BBC, at the level of individuals, is very proud that the BBC is like that. The licence fee brings with it an awful lot of other problems. You know, not everybody understands the value of social capital in this country. Not everybody understands the value of public service in this country. I mean, I was reading a piece only the other day, you know. Well, you know, let's let's get rid of this licence fee thing and just just collect money from people who want to pay for it, you know. And it's just completely (laughs) not understanding the whole concept of public good.
0: Do you think
3: people want? Just straightforward, impartial journalism all the time. Like you say, you can't get over why newspapers didn't die fifty years ago. You know, and you said I bought the Guardian for twenty years, whatever. You a Guardian reader? You know, th- there's well, something read about, all of the papers. Yeah, actually, who? Yeah, uh, who you are and what you're used to and how you like it delivered to you. I think it's emotional, isn't it? That's yes, why. Right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't think people want impartial journalism all the time, do they? They want to read something that they know they might agree with, or hate, or disagree with. Well, but Joe, I think that's the- why
2: the mail is, you know, yeah. a hugely successful enterprise, mm. you know, because it it, it it understands exactly the emotional connection people yeah. have with with yeah. this strange Dacre world that goes on that exists somewhere that, that I've never been to. Uh, and they understand that emotional connection yeah. and they deliver it every single mm, day. It's a brilliant newspaper. Absolutely brilliant. I, it is but
1: it's also horrible. I mean it basically is well, you oh, say that, mail online it's, is it's, it's it's so, celebrities who are, put weight on and would, 2 million readers would beg to differ, Yeah. yeah. Well, they're all morons in my personal no, opinion. I'm I not the opinion of the you're... media society. <laughs> I, uh,
3: yeah, I disagree. But uh, there are some people, you know, I for one, uh, I'm tortured by social media. Having done almost a decade in party politics behind the scenes doing this in somebody else's name or doing it for a a, a political purpose, to come into Twitter and blogging in my own name, I'm absolutely tortured by it, agonise over it. And the way, you know, getting your news and putting things out there in that form, it's just... Some people are just going to take a bit longer to get used to. Well, I mean, I, well, I'm,
0: and then, well, the thing is, it, it, and it raises the issue of: is it worth it? We had Twitter league tables at the independence so I was forced. We did; it was the only <laughs> thing we were judged on. And a Friday afternoon, our rating in the in the Twitter league I was one of the best women, but I was rubbish anyway. And uh, no, so I was forced to join. And then I had this sort of awful sense of, you know, the, the guilt, thinking, well, I shouldn't tweet during working hours because that's not really working, is it? But then, since I was only judged on my tweeting yeah. and not on my <laughs> got, you know readers or you know column following or whatever the whole thing got completely Kafkaesque. Yeah. I have to say I don't think very many people are going to think on their deathbed. I wish I'd spent more time on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I personally, if I, I I remember writing a column I didn't really believe in, um, which for some some reason probably because I didn't want to get the sack at the time. Was um, supporting Lady Gaga over Jonathan Franzen on the um, on the Twitter thing, which was, I mean, about the most ingenious and ridiculous column I've ever written. Because actually, if the chips are down, I'm with Jonathan Franzen.
1: We all do things for money that we don't want to do. Uh,
0: yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's a waste. I think it's a waste of time. You know, I think it's quite good fun. I I don't spend much time on it during the day at all. If I'm watching Newsnight, then I might, you know, make the odd smart Alec tweet about some ridiculous thing. But essentially, is this a good time about three score and ten on this planet? No, it absolutely isn't. But I will, of course, be charging myself as a very expensive consultant on social media to anyone who's listening and would like me to. <laughs> It's interesting
1: Joe, because I have the opposite case to you. I mean, my personal practice, I represent uh, seven chief executives and presidents of big companies and a yeah. politician around the world. You know, I find writing stuff for them quite difficult because it has to be signed off, go through various drafts and still be in their authentic voice. Whereas if I write anything myself or tweet something, uh, you know, blah, 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 whatever I'm going to say, it doesn't have to go through any process. I have the opposite view to you. I don't mind tweeting anything in my own voice.
3: I'm agonising over everything and I should just speak basically and get out there and tweet a bit. But no, no, I find it very hard work. I'm completely tortured by it. I think I wake up in the morning and listen to the news. I think, oh, I'm going to blog about that. And then I think, Mm. oh, Good grief! No, I can't. I can't. And then I get on and do
0: something else. And so I, I, I'm going to have to do it and force myself to do it because I quite enjoy writing. I'm with you on the blogging mm. because essentially that means doing one's job for free, and exactly. I so resent that I won't <laughs> doing do it, it for free.
2: And also with no deadline. And that, that's exactly. that's the exactly. hard thing that I yeah. find. And like you, I wake up in the morning, and think, well, that's jolly interesting. And I say, you know, I've got my laptop because I do, you know, having breakfast and I sort of I start to write intro yeah. par. I kind of lose interest and, oh, well, I'll do it tomorrow, you know, it never gets written, you know, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I used to blog a lot and I used to use Twitter a lot, you know, years and years ago, and I think I'm now more of a lurker, actually. Mm. I, I get a lot of news from Twitter because the, the people I follow now, they're mostly political correspondents, mm. they're mostly, you know, writers and, and journalists who I, 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 I'm i interested in what they're writing, and so, actually, that's where I go, it's the first place I go in the morning, not because I'm going to start tweeting about what I think, because mm. I can't imagine why anyone would, would want to know about that. But, but because it's, you know, it just yeah. plugs me into what's going on in the world.
0: To go back to the earlier comments about professionalism, I, I think it to do Twitter well requires skill because essentially, yeah. and I think a lot of people haven't actually grasped this, essentially it's a persona. It's, again, it's quite a finely crafted persona within a very, very tight discipline. It's like a sonnet in a way, the 140-character thing. You have to handle it quite carefully. So I know that whenever I do mildly personal stuff, I know that it's not really me, you know, or it's the kind of you know greedy me that's talking about having another scone or whatever. But I, but I, I don't. But I do think a lot of people don't have those filters, and literally, you know, they write what comes into their head. And I think it's it's a bad idea.
1: We're all going to hell in a handcart, then, in, in Twitter, basically, is our our considered and angry, apparently. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, moving on to our final topic about the BBC Trust, I've written here in my notes: Is the BBC Trust fit for purpose, and should pattern go? Kevin, own, how long were you at the BBC for? Thirty-three years. And were you given a gold watch
2: or something at the end? You like in the uh, American cop films just before no, no, they no, shot on their no, last day? No, no. Day. I, I, I insisted that I was allowed to shuffle out uh, <laughs> without anyone noticing. I but, just,
0: a, but a whopping great pension,
1: one, presume? Sadly, no. I, I'm
2: not. I'm not on the list of the uh, the, the great and rich. Uh, uh, I, I think I sort of must have mistimed things slightly. But anyway, so you can give us quite a unique view. What do you think? BBC trust fit for purpose? Well, I <laughs> think. The problem with the trust was that it was set up by the Labour government in a panic. People have been gunning for the governors for a long time because it didn't seem the right sort of organisation. The point about the governors is they're like sort of uncles and aunts who, when things are going badly wrong, they put their arm around you and say, they're there, you know, let's, we'll, we'll get through this together. So that, that, you know, and that kind of paternalistic... The idea was it just sent out of kilter with the 2000s. And there was a lot of pressure, you know, to, to have the BBC better regulated, in inverted commas, uh, something rather like Ofcom. There was a lot of talk about Ofcom, you know, being in charge. of that. So they came up with this bizarre idea, and it was a bizarre idea, of, of the, um, the trust. And no one was ever very clear whether the trust was a regulator or whether it was the, the uncle and aunts who would put their arm around the corporation and say they're there when things went wrong. Um, and so it, 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 it tried at times to regulate and it tried at other times to, to, to keep the ship, you know, to mix my metaphors, to keep the ship you know, sailing straight. Now, that was fine when there weren't any crises. But as soon as we got you know, the big crisis uh, of 2011, which was the Savile fallout, you suddenly saw the trust in its two persona. And Chris Patton was stuck in the middle. His, his instinct was to play the uncle.
1: Was mm-hmm. to sort of
2: hold his arm around the corporation mm-hmm. and say, "They're there, you know. We'll get through this together." But he was required to be a regulator, and he was never—he was neither very well. Add to that the complication that um, George Entwistle was absolutely his man for the DG's job, and therefore he mm-hmm. felt a need to protect him, uh, even beyond the point at which it was clear he couldn't be protected. So, is the trust fit, fit for purpose? Well, if you can tell me what you think the purpose might have been, I might be able to answer the question, I don't think anybody really knew at the time the trust was set up what it was really supposed to do. I personally feel that, that the governors were not outdated and I actually think some sort of return to that kind of sense of an organisation that uh, instills a sense of public purpose and inst- instills a sense of public decency. And this is the thing mm-hmm. that gets lost in, in you know when you sort of have this harsh kind of regulatory framework that, that, you know, where's the decency in all of this? You know, where's the person who says, hang on, you know, that might be legal, but is it decent to do mm, that? Exactly. And I think this is what you kind of lose. So I fear that what will not happen will be a return to the governors, but I think that's what should be handled. That kind of thing should be happening.
1: Christina Patterson, do you think that um, Lord Patton has just been unlucky that he's the, the manifestation, as the chairman of the board of the, of the BBC Trust, that he's just been unlucky that the Trust doesn't really know what he's got? As Kevin said, there's this duality. Or do you think that he personally has, has cocked it up a little bit?
0: I think it's very difficult with these things. To go back to Kevin's point about decency, I think Chris Patton is a decent man. I think George Entwistle, is, as far as I know, I never met him a decent man, I've met Chris Patton either. But... Decent men are not enough. And, and I think the problem with the BBC is, you know, it's a bit like, I don't know, Chinese government or, or whatever. It's, it's somehow or other, it seems to be, well, you'll know much more about this, Kevin, than, than any of us, but it just seems to be a catastrophically mismanaged organisation. I mean, in some ways it always has been, but certainly the, the Savile disaster, followed by all the ridiculous payoffs for BBC staff, which really, I mean, you can, for, for people who are really struggling to pay their 140 quid licence fee and then hearing that people are getting half million, one million payoffs, it's just a joke. And some of these people didn't even lose their jobs. You know, they resigned and then got a gargantuan payoff. I, I think it's very hard to know what system works better because the fact is that the system that's there is the sum total of the individuals at that point and the mechanisms they have in place and their degree of engagement with it. And all of these things are very, very part-time. And it's like the government governance of charities when you get unpaid trustees who, technically speaking, are in charge of an organisation. I've run an organisation. I thought it was absolutely crazy. But technically speaking, the trustees, who often knew nothing about what was going on, were my bosses. So I think, you know, governance is a whole big issue. But a, but an organisation like the BBC, which has so much public investment in it and which does have a very, very important public service role and, you know, it ought to be keeping Wreathian values alive, ought to get its governance
1: right. Joe, what's the political fallout from this? Do you think the licence fee is safe in the long term?
0: Yes,
3: I do. And I think the sad thing about Patton is I think came across as a bit arrogant. I think people will tolerate mistakes, but arrogance and a lack of humility is another thing entirely. Uh, And I I was just thinking while you were talking, you know, the BBC is is similar to politicians, isn't it? It's all public service and public life. And they've got to be held to a higher standard, but there are easier ways of making a living. Absolutely. You know, it's it's,
0: it's a tough job. Unless you're a BBC manager, in which (laughs) case they're
3: (laughs) (laughs) You know, not for all the tea in China. Um, I I remember thinking, and this is quite a scurrilous thing to say, but when when all this was going on and George just was just taking a sort of... I
1: terribly sorry for him.
3: I was, th- I was thinking, if I worked for him, I'd be spinning to buggery against Mark Thompson. And it just seemed like he was completely exposed. No one was protecting him. And in some ways, you can understand Patton's sort of want to, uh, you know,
0: kind of extend his arm and look after this well, guy. Yes, but Yes, but I have to say, as someone who worked on a daily paper for 10 years, when you hear... Of a guy who's been in in meetings and hasn't actually bothered to listen to mm, the Today yep. program, you think well sorry've I've had to read all the papers, listen to the Today program really? every day for ten years, whether I get paid for it or Before not you get you to know? Work, yeah. and then you have still have to do your 11 12 hour day at work. so yeah. I did think sorry, but you're living in another universe if you think that's okay.
2: but just on, just on, on on Chris Patton and the payoffs. I think this is actually quite important that um, yeah, I think I think there was a, a, a certain degree of um, you know off the bridge. Uh, when these payoffs were, were going through, although technically it wasn't Chris, during Chris Patton's mm. time, it was during Michael Lyon's time.
1: Mm-hmm. But, I
2: mean, the, um, the real problem here was, you know, this, it's a classic example of be careful what you wish for. Because back in 2003, yeah. 2004, people were saying the BBC should be more business-oriented, it should be more business-like. And so, when, unfortunately, I, was, I played a part in getting rid of Greg Dyke, uh, and they were looking around for a re- replacement, you know, they reached out to the commercial sector, Mark Thompson... Doubled, his sal- doubled the salary of the DG as soon as he was appointed. But that was ridiculous. Which was an absurd thing to do. This, no Michael, this was Michael Grade's uh, doing, uh, which he now regrets, incidentally. Mm. Uh, but, of course, if you've got a DG on 800,000, yeah. your head of personnel is going and to be to on something similar. Yeah, your head of yeah. HR, your head of finance is going to be on something similar. And then when it comes to the payoffs... They're going to want bank-style payoffs, and that—that's so. This whole thing goes back to decisions made in two thousand and four, mm-hmm. which were largely inspired by those voices chippy chipping on the on the sidelines, saying, "Oh, the BBC should be more business-like." But,
0: but those voices were always based on a myth, and the myth was that that you know it was. Terribly hard to get people at that level, and they would be instantly headhunted by another very similar mm. broadcasting mm. organisation. Well, that was never going to
1: happen. It's quite a small it, population, ha- isn't it? As an employer, it was never going to happen.
2: And also, the people who were brought in on these inflated salaries—some of them, like the head of personnel, like uh, 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 Sandra Bailey, uh, like uh, the head of HR—they stayed for a couple of years. Mm. You know, these—you these, the, know, these did not. These people did not form a long-term commitment to the BBC because of the great watch of money they they so the whole thing was a complete myth people are prepared to work you know for relatively low salaries you know I worked for um, I mean I remember having lunch with Simon Kellner, one of your former
0: bosses many years
2: ago Uh, and uh, I was horrified to hear that his salary was about twice the readership uh, uh, of The Mm. Independent
0: I can assure you that his (laughs) colleagues was not (laughs) Uh,
2: you know and and there was I an editor with you know six seven million Mm -hmm. uh, listeners yeah, and I was getting a Fraction of mm. that kind of salary but I was quite happy with that because that's what I'd signed up for in 1978 you know when I joined the BBC
0: when I asked Simon Kellner for a, a pay rise um, yeah. when I was promoted if, I can't remember two or three years ago three years ago um, he said what are you earning I told him and he said is that all?
1: <laughs> and on that cheery note I think I'll start to bring proceedings to a close we're not running out of tape but I think we have to be mindful of the audience's attention span um, I think just before we, we close if I could just go around the table if you wanted to let people know your website and Twitter ID so that people can stalk you online Christina do you want to start first?
0: Uh, well my website is uk, and I will force myself to do another blog within the next few months <laughs> and my Twitter handle is at Queen Christina underscore,
1: Kevin, what are your contact details on the electric interweb?
2: Uh, my <laughs> website is uh, www.offspinmedia.co.uk uh, uk uh, and my Twitter name is at KJ Marsh and last but not least, Joe
3: I can be found blogging at www.pha mediacom and my Twitter address, which I will do more of in the future, is at Joe Foster, P-H-A.
1: And please, by all means, stalk me on the internet. I have a huge void in my soul that can only be filled with vast amounts of Twitter followers. So please do look me up at at Paul W. R. Blanchard. And of course, don't forget the Media Society. You can join online for 60 quid. It's a bargain. You get to meet loads of people and learn loads of things. We're at www.themediasociety.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at The Media Society. This has been the Media Society Podcast. I'm Paul Blanchard, back with more banter about the media, both old and new, in a fortnight.
3: A Big Things Media Production.